the Trilogy Podcast with Vin and Scott. Three movies, two men, one podcast. sort of desecrating this music. Out of there, partner. You need to stop it. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm Vin. And I'm Scott. Stop already. <laughs> we are the Trilogy Podcast, folks. We're the only podcast in the universe devoted strictly to trilogies. No reboots. No straight-to-cables. We've got humor, debate, trivia, and more. To hell with the movie Partners. Yeah. If they made four. You know what I'm talking about, Sidewinder? Yeah, I sure do. Yeah, this really gets you in the mood, doesn't it? Yeah. Obviously, you're yes. in the mood. You won't stop. With it's, I, well, it's been a very cowboy week for me. Why is that? Well, we watched these movies. We did. And also, uh, the Red Dead Redemption 2 came out, so that's been a part of my life. I'm also playing week. that video game myself, and yeah. we attempt to connect pop culture to the trilogy that we want to present to you. So... Right now it's Cowboys. It's the hot yeah. video game everyone into video games seems to be playing, and Scott. De- and it's definitely influenced directly by these mm. movies, I would say. Would you say? Yes. But I think it would be wrong to say that somehow this video game, this trivial video game, in any way measures up to the grandeur, Scott, of... Wait a second. Have we even said what trilogy we're doing? We have not. All right. Scott, you can say it. It is... The Man With No Name Trilogy. Right. Yes, it is, Scott. Sometimes it's known as the Dollars Trilogy, but we're going with the Man With No Name Trilogy. Yes, because it sounds cooler. It does sound cooler. And is much cooler than anything, like we were saying before, as silly as a video game. But there is a connection between this and the world of Western culture. And I think think there are good examples of uh, how this trilogy has influenced other trilogies and not just this game. But well, I we'll tell you, this was a that. real education for me. I've seen so few Westerns in my life. Maybe Unforgiven. Perhaps a little-known yeah. film called The Frisco Kid starring Harrison Ford and, and uh, Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder, yeah. Is The Three Amigos a Western? <laughs> it's west And I've just basically said every Western I've ever seen before this trilogy. Yeah. So this is an education for me. Yeah. Um, and we'd like to educate you, listener, of the Trilogy Podcast, mm-hmm. by first telling you what kind of trilogy this is. Yes, this is important. There was some debate over this, Scott. Yes, but I think ultimately you were correct. Do you? Yes. Good, because I didn't want to debate any more about it. I... Nope, nope, I think you're absolutely right. All right, so let's let the, um, the robotic roommate that sometimes lives under my bed tell us first what kind of trilogy this is. Okay. Go. Call me by my name, you dick. I am Trilogy Bot. This trilogy is a director's trilogy. Its root is the director's vision, and the common universe in which the films exist. While the stories and characters are different, the director often chooses to use the same actors or location for all three. These are theme-based and style-based rather than plot-based trilogies. Dick. Time after time he insults both of us, and we let it go. Yes. Because how else will we be able to disseminate this information? Right. We need him. We need him. More than he needs us, quite honestly. (sighs) Scott, this is a director's trilogy because basically Sergio Leone created a genre of film. The spaghetti western. Yeah. Right? And it was, uh, you know, 
frequently copied after that. Right, and you could say this is a, an Army of One trilogy. It certainly qualifies. In so many ways, Clint Eastwood is the first Army of One action hero. Right. But... Yeah, it's but close. no, I think I think I think it is more a director's trilogy. Director's trilogy. So I think it, I think it is. All right. Just because, again, I mean, when you look at it, he didn't even intend these movies to really be a trilogy so much, right? And I guess didn't think that Clint Eastwood is the same character in these movies, but it seems like he is. He's dressed the same. He kept offering the role to different actors after Clint Eastwood, and yeah. they kept rejecting it, and Clint kept coming back. So it's not as if he said, I need right. a Clint to Easterwood in all of the films. No, is that, yeah. I'm sure he spoke so, that well, way. Well, apparently the man with no name, even that. Scott, apparently. every time I hear man with no name, I obviously hear, hear this song in my head. I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. It felt good to be out of the rain. In the desert, you can remember your name. Because there ain't no one for to give you no pain. Horse with no name. Right. Yes. I'm just saying that it sounds... I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, let's move on. I'm just saying it's going... You know what? I opened a can of worms here. Let's go on. All right. right. So um, I think it's important, critical, in fact, that you should break down the plots for us. Yes. You came to the house once again with the plots not done. Well, no. I fell asleep writing them last night. So. Well, they get more and more intricate. No? Yes, yes, it's very complicated. <sighs> All right. In fact, I, I, you know, again, these are, you know, just trying to give you a general idea of the plot. Uh, so there's going to be some events that might be missing uh, that weren't what, what I deemed important enough to get across the point of the story. So, uh, yeah. We'll cover it. We'll get to it. Sure. So here we go with the plots. A Fistful of Dollars. The first film, 1964. In the Old West... A mysterious man rides into a small town where a band of outlaws and the town's sheriff's family are competing for control of the town. The mysterious man decides to play both sides for financial gain until he discovers that the head outlaw has kidnapped one of the women in town and is keeping her from her husband and son, and he decides to help her escape. When the outlaws discover the mysterious man has set her free, they beat and torture him. Let me just say that that torture scene is very extreme for that time and place. Yes. It's a hardcore torture scene. Oh, it goes on for a while, yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. I thought a little bit of Lethal Weapon and the torture <laughs> that Danny Glover oh, yeah. and uh, uh, Mel, Mel Gibson, Gibson underwent. Gets the uh, the car battery, right? They're like, zzz, like the shocking electricity them with a on Mel. Like, oh. And then they're actually pouring salt into the open wounds of Danny Glover. <laughs> it's I a little ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. That's a little too far. A lot of Danny I mean, Glover spittle. See, now you're just trying to be evil. That's not <laughs> evil. You gotta... I'm just saying. Gotta be natural. When the outlaws discover the mysterious man has set her free, they beat and torture him, but he is able to escape the town while the outlaws fight with the sheriff's family. The mysterious man returns wearing a makeshift bulletproof vest, defeats the outlaws, and rides off into the sunset. And he really does. He does. That's it. Now, see how easy that was, Scott? Yes. If only every plot that you had to break down for us was that simple and straight ahead. Straightforward, very simple Because that's story. so much what these movies are about, especially yeah. right in the beginning. There's no ambiguity about what's going on. Yeah. 
And the, you know what? The characters constantly just announce exposition. Exactly. Yeah. And we're going to talk about how Tarantino emulates this later on in his films. But it's really about, here's the mission of the movie, and will they accomplish it? Yeah. I tell you. Well, you, I, you find in these movies that the side characters, the people like in town who, and all these people, they're giving up most of the exposition the entire time while the main characters say virtually nothing. Oh, boy. Until like they're having scenes with another character who says nothing and then they have to talk. Clint <laughs> says nothing in yeah. these films. Yeah. People say, oh, Schwarzenegger got paid $100,000 for every line in Terminator or whatever yeah. bullshitty way of breaking down dialogue versus money. Right. This must be where that began. That's a, an action movie trope right off the bat, right? Yeah. Th saying very little, being a very physical actor. Yeah. It's the physicality of the performance, not what's said. Yeah. I mean, there's the guys, too, who do, like, Michael Myers and stuff. You never see, even see their face. And, you know, they work all the time. Yeah, but that's a yeah. little different, Scott, in that that's the antagonist, and it's the driving sure. evil. But the Terminator was the antagonist in the first one. Good point. Good point. He came back for good. I just said good point to you, and you pointed at me. I don't know. You see what we're doing in this room of just just has the two of us in it? We've got our own show going on here. And they continued into the second film for a few dollars more. 1965, the following year. In the Old West, the mysterious man is now bounty hunting for money, and his next target is a ruthless gang led by an outlaw who is haunted by a memory from his past, where a woman he was raping killed herself during the act. I'm really upset that you revealed that part of the plot here. Because it is one of the more... I think it's important for... Uh, for it's, it's outrageous. Yes. And the fact that she killed herself to avoid being raped by him yes. really has haunted him over the years. Yeah. And it's almost as if we're supposed to feel for him in some way because he was that was the humanizing thing right was that's like, the, not oh. the the fact that he was raping her but the fact that to avoid being raped right. she killed herself he didn't like, do anything he didn't stop like, himself Whoa, that fucked me up yeah it's really insane when that's I had a really crazy weekend <laughs> right when that's revealed at the end of the film we we it's, it's outrageous it is yes we but, buy it though yes it seems that in the old west there are only so many jobs a gunslinger could have yeah you're a a bounty hunter or a, a... Something with a gun. A robber. If you're not a farmer, you have a gun and you use it for work. You're a rustler, like, maybe. Yeah. Or a sheriff. A wrangler. <laughs> there was very little difference between bad and good there. Everyone was almost an anti-hero. The sheriff was just one minor act away from being the biggest robber in town, it seems. Yeah. In every movie, in real life, all the time. Yeah. Wyatt Earp. Which is why it's funny. You're like, oh, I guess he's good because he's bounty hunting bad guys to them, but they're not good either. Well, you like, know what? Clint Eastwood's character slowly gets more good as these movies, as the trilogy goes on. Yeah, he's more which neutral is neutral. In interesting first. because there is some debate that that uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly is actually a prequel. It is a prequel. Yeah, it is a prequel. Right, because it takes place during the Civil War. Where the so it's it's almost so it's I've seen people say it's the reverse order. That it happens in. Yeah. So well, uh, it would almost be like he becomes more hardened. You know what? That's it's cooler, Scott. I hadn't yeah. even thought of that. Yeah. I mean, I kind of knew both of those facts, but hadn't put them together. Very good. Yeah. So, yeah, he becomes a harder man. I like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty nice. Cool, that is cool. <laughs> the mysterious man discovers the gang intends to rob a bank, and he heads to the town where the bank is located. When he arrives, he finds a retired army colonel is also after the gang for the bounty. 
When neither man will back down from the bounty, both the mysterious man and the army colonel decide to join forces and split the bounty. Right. It's decided that the mysterious man will join the gang while the colonel watches from the outside. Good plan. Man on the inside, man on the outside. Mm Mm-hmm. Classic. Despite all of their planning, the mysterious man and the colonel are unable to stop the men from robbing the bank, and they escape with the safe from the bank. I mean, that scene goes on so long. Yeah. You're watching, and you're like, can we get to the bank? Yeah. Get to the bank! (laughs) Just go, go. Please! Yeah. And then when they get there, they they have all this research, and then... Didn't they get me started on the logic behind that bank (laughs) and why they had to rob that bank? Oops, we didn't think of the back of the bank. Like... Never occurred to us there could be more than one cabinet. There's an. <laughs> There's what? <laughs> oh wait, but what if they got rid of one of the walls? Wasn't every bank in the West behind a wood wall made of one plank of yeah. wood? <laughs> Couldn't you just go through any part of the building to get to whatever you needed? Yeah, essentially. No one ever thought of that. Yeah. All right, go ahead. The colonel tails the gang and finds them in a small border town where he assists the mysterious man and offers the head outlaw his services to open the safe they stole. The colonel opens the safe and the money is placed in a lockbox to be divvied up in a month. That night, the mysterious man and the colonel break into the lockbox and steal the money, but they are caught and beaten. Obviously. But they are able to quickly hide the money in a nearby tree, and the outlaws believe the money is still in the lockbox. That night, the ruthless outlaw sets them free and sends his men after them in hopes that the mysterious man and the colonel will kill them so he can keep the money. It's one of the most ridiculous plans ever. Well, I mean, there's no logic to the plan. Indio's a complete lunatic. He's he's evil. He's He's very (laughs) evil. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, you know this play doesn't make sense. (laughs) 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 You know what? It's just about as effective as the notion that somehow hiding the money in a tree is going to fool everyone. Right. On the way. On the path. Yeah. One foot away from the... Hey, what's that in that tree? Yeah. Oh, pull it down. Oh, the money. We don't have to (laughs) have a giant search at all for it. It's right outside the camp. How did they not see that happening, too? It was right there as he was doing it. Look. Only to discover the money is gone. The mysterious man and the colonel kill the gang and corner the ruthless outlaw, where the colonel reveals the woman the outlaw raped was his sister, mm-hmm. and he kills the outlaw. Yes, the music. Yes. The awesome. whole connection with the music. Yeah. Uh, what was with it? A, a watch? It's like, yeah, like a pocket watch that pocket played music. Watch. The mysterious man and the colonel part ways, and the mysterious man takes the gang's corpses and rides off into the sunset. That's why, I mean, it's as good as money back then, you know? Hey, you're telling me. Bringing in the bounties. That's what this has all been about. He always makes out, like, he always gets so much money at the end of these movies. I'm like, how are you not, like, a millionaire in the West? Retire by now. Yeah. But I guess if it's backwards. Oh, yeah. But, mm. Yeah, so why is he out there? What did he do with all the money from yeah. the third film? Maybe he blew it. I don't know. On what? You know, there is apparently, uh, there was like a comic series and like... um... (laughs) All right, Scott, are you ready to do the third film now? I am. All right. Yes, the third film being The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. 1966. In the Old West, it is the end of the Civil War, and the mysterious man has teamed up with a Mexican outlaw. The two take advantage of the bounty on the Mexican, and the mysterious man repeatedly turns him in for the reward. It's an interesting scam. Yes. I mean... It's, I mean, there's a lot of risk involved, but... Yeah. 
but he's I mean, pretty damn sure of himself. You've really got to be a great shot. Yeah, really. And the Mexicans got to be really trusting. Yeah. Well, that's the thing for Clint. It's like, you know, if it doesn't work <laughs> out, I'm like, oh, right away. Yeah, I did my <laughs> best. Like, yeah. And then he just takes off. Poor know? Eli Wallach is like, what are you doing to me? Uh, and yet the mysterious man repeatedly turns him in for the reward and then rescues him until the mysterious man leaves the Mexican in the desert and dissolves their partnership. Meanwhile, elsewhere, an evil man interrogates a Civil War soldier about the location of stolen Confederate gold and gets him to give him the name of a soldier who knows the location of the gold. The Mexican catches up with the mysterious man and leads him miles into the desert and deprives him of water. While out walking, they come across a wagon of dead Confederate soldiers. Inside, they discover one soldier still alive, the same soldier the evil man is looking for. On a side note, that soldier is played by a man whose name is Antonio Casale, a distant, distant uh. relative of our field correspondent, Phil Casale. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> you could tell immediately, couldn't you? Yeah. The acting style. Oh, no. We knew. The man tells the Mexican the gold is in a cemetery. But when the Mexican goes to get him water, the soldier tells the mysterious man which grave the gold is hidden in. And, really, and well, then dies. Was he really just fucking with the two of them? Like, did he know he was yeah. about to die? Like, oh, oh shit, now I'm really about to die. Yeah. Who else is around? Where did you come from? You know what I thought that, like, I had forgotten, like, I had watched this movie a long time ago. So, like, I had forgotten, like, what the end is. And I was like, oh. Wouldn't it be funny if, like, the guy's name was Waters or something like that? Like, and he was trying to say, Water, Water. So they're like, <laughs> that and that gag. was like, oh, if only you understood. <laughs> like, old... you knew the whole time which grave it was under. Like... <laughs> that old gag. That's pretty good. Yeah. That would be pretty good. And I was like, oh, I was a little disappointed at the end. <laughs> it wasn't that. Like, uh, yes, he tells the mysterious man which grave the gold is hidden in and then dies. So the Mexican must now keep the mysterious man alive. After getting the mysterious man medical help from his priest brother, the two are then captured by the Union Army and brought to a camp where they are interrogated by the evil man who is posing as a member of the Union Army. Is he posing or is he an actual... No, he's posing. Posing, yes. He's posing, but it seems very... Like, it's very easy to get a job. If you were a good shot, you could just do anything and get away with anything. Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ, the guy's a good shot. He's a fucking murderer. Yeah, just well, do what he all right. says. He's the sheriff, for God's sake. Yeah, the, the police can't help us here. Okay? Oh, you want to run the the thousand strong prison camp? Sure, you're a good shot. Come on in. I'm terrified of you. Yeah. <laughs> he's a good shot, everybody. Hey, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he's a good shot. Back off. And only the guy with gangrene is the one who stands up to him. <laughs> I may not be able to stand, but I stand up to you. <laughs> The evil man gets the cemetery name from the Mexican and knows the mysterious man won't talk and takes him with him. The Mexican escapes the evil man's henchmen and catches back up with the mysterious man to kill the evil man's gang, but the evil man escapes. The mysterious man and the Mexican arrive at another Union Army camp where their men are blocking the way to the bridge to the cemetery and a battle soon ensues. Getting the idea from the Union captain, the two decide to blow up the bridge and proceed to the cemetery, where the evil man is waiting for them. The mysterious man suggests they all duel for the information, and kills the evil man while the Mexican's gun isn't even loaded. <laughs> the mysterious man and the Mexican dig up the gold, but the mysterious man hangs the Mexican from a tree. What? No, he's, he's good. Takes mm. half of the money and leaves him to die. Mm, what's going to happen? Only to save him one more time by shooting the rope and 
riding off into the sunset. Yep. He's looking down. He's like, you ugly piece of shit. There you go. <laughs> ugly. I'll let you live, you ugly son of a bitch. There's half the money for you. That ugly. was nice. He left half the money. Yeah. Hey, listen. Even Levon Cleef has m- honor. That's the whole point in this. Yeah. That, you know, if he's promised he's going to kill someone, he's yeah. gonna, and he's gotten paid for Whenever it, he's going to do paid, it. I'm paid, I'm going to do it. Right. So even amongst the bad guys in the Old West, it seems there's a degree of honor in there. Yeah. Which, again, is a big part of Red Dead Redemption and about your honor and, like, it's a whole morality thing. I feel and like I'm really focused on an amazing new trilogy and you're more focused on a video game. It, I know you've seen it before and I hadn't seen it They were both before, happening at the same time in my life. It's okay. there, you know... Okay. They're connecting for right, me. Right. But but truly, because I mean Same. I just think the old West is a good background to to question people's morality and see where people have their own set of moral every any cowboy it's movie is basically about that. But there's a simplicity to it. That's the idea. It's good versus evil. The most common conflict known to man, known right, to but film, even a known good to movies, man known does to art. some things that you're like, eh, he's not all good. That's like he's thing, generally good. See but how like, far will a man go? He's is... an opportunist, Clint. The good is still an opportunist. Good point. Good point. Is that it, ma- but does that make him immoral? No. Does me- because he because he's an opportunist, but he also does the right thing, right? Because even in the first movie, you know, he has to save that woman because it's just right. the right thing to do mm-hmm. while he's in the middle of playing these gangs against Agreed. each other, Agreed. so he can make money. Agreed. So it's like, yeah, I mean, he understands where he what time period he. Clint lives would in. tell you. Clint would be it's like the libertarian way. You just you <laughs> just, just take whatever you want. <laughs> you just completely agreed with my political philosophy. Thank you very much. Thanks. Conservative people, by the nature of the word itself, are play a little more close to the vest. They don't go around a hot dog in it. These movies, Scott, this trilogy, is defined in a bunch of different ways, but I think you're going the director, Sergio Leone. Yeah. I think you're going Clint as the star, and I think you're going with the music, Ennio yep. Marcone. Ennio Marcone. I think those are the big three things that we have to talk about. Yeah. Because there really aren't any other actors that are in all three. There there's are a, there's a there's a few and they play like some small parts. Yeah. You'd know And then there's actually the people who've been in two are usually the ones worth talking about. Agreed. I and we'll, say, we'll like, talk about them as you we know, go. You know, any of the bad guys and we'll talk know. about them as we go. Sure. Sergio Leone. Yes. The director created the spaghetti western genre on his own. Yeah. Okay. Didn't name it himself, but no he didn't because he himself was Italian and Yeah. Part of what makes a spaghetti western a spaghetti western is the fact that it is Italian, so that's where the name comes from. We'll, right. Um, there's a couple of things that characterize these films in particular, though. They basically are all filmed in Spain, okay, with yeah. um, an Italian-Spanish technical crew. and with, Well, that's where the horses are. Yes, that is where the horses are. It's in also Spain. where the desert scenery is. Yes. In multiple deserts in Spain. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're using Italian, Spanish, and German actors mostly. Yeah. Okay. These films are always uh, recorded without sound and dubbed in later. Right. Okay. And the American actors are usually up-and-coming actors like Clint or older actors like Lee Van Cleef. And they are doing their own dubs, which I yes. think is worth They're definitely yeah. doing their own dubs, the Americans, while the European actors are not doing their own dubs. Yeah. So these are spaghetti westerns, and often, Scott— the the ones that followed the Man with No Name trilogy adhered to the plot lines that, that that came through these films. It was usually the loner coming into town, playing one side against the other. Yes, using a combination of wits and great shooting. And if I may say, I think I think most movies that have a plot of a uh, a loner coming into town and playing two sides against each other is a great movie. I agree. 
like um comes to mind Miller's Crossing is basically him playing two sides against okay. each other. Um what's the one with Bruce Willis? Uh, Last Man Standing is also he okay. like drifts into town and Good point. but it takes place during like the uh 30s or 40s I think. They got like Tommy guns and shit, and they're gangsters instead of. Uh... Last man standing, the one where he's uh, got the iconic uh, hat on with the two guns out in front of him doing the double shooting. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That picture. Yeah. I... Christopher Walken's also in. Yeah. It. I thought it over. I'll take the job. You must smell a winner. Did a thousand in advance. Nobody's worth that much. People thought that the American audience was done with the Western because they were so simplistic at this point. Right. And the Europeans were like, Sergio Leone was like, no, there's still a market in Europe. And if done the right way, there's still a market in the United States. And creating yeah. this anti-hero, this very visual, specific type of movie right. did it. It really reinvigorated yeah. the notion of the Western, I think, in people's minds. Right. This man with no name is played by Clint Eastwood. He's going to trigger a whole new style in adventure. A couple of pieces of information that are neat about this trilogy. These were filmed um, a year apart, but were released in this country all in the same year, a couple of months apart. So really? They were all released. Yeah, they were all released. 66? They were all released in 1966, a few months apart. Yeah. People, the distributors didn't have any faith in these Westerns. They didn't have any faith in this new guy. Another thing that's interesting is that this really follows the exact same plot of the Kurosawa movie. Yojimbo. Yes. And he sued. Yeah. And he owns the Asian rights and 15% of this trilogy. Well, I mean, the other example is The Magnificent Seven, which is based on Seven Samurai. Okay. Yeah. This was over-the-top graphic violence for the time. It was shocking to people. Yeah. In fact, when they put it on television in the 70s, in the mid-70s, they actually put a disclaimer in front of it that sort of justified the violence in a strange way. Yeah. That's since been taken down. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I mean, Looking the old West now, was a rough place. People got murdered all the time. It's it's not not to say that it's a completely accurate depiction, but like that was you know. Yeah, that yeah. machete scene is badass. He threw yeah. a machete through someone. Yeah, that's an immense amount of force. Let's he not must kid be. ourselves. How sharp could that machete? That old West right. in the dirt machete. Yeah. Used by it's the guy. It's not like it was to... his machete, and he knew it was sharp. Come like, on. so he had to really compensate with a lot more throwing power. They called him Machete. Nowadays, you can go to places and throw axes and get drunk and throw an axe, and that's a yeah. new thing. Yeah. So maybe there's one right down the road from me. There's not. There's one down where I'm from on the Jersey Shore. Yeah. The, the question They're is, popping up everywhere. Maybe it's easier than we think to throw a, bl a bladed instrument through someone. So I fucking ran up behind him with a hatchet, smash, smash, smash. Yeah. Sergio Leone famous for these intense, long close-ups of people's faces. He considered each close-up as an aria, he said, almost as a movement, as an artistic movement in its own right. Yeah. Apparently, at this point in the United States in film, close-ups were usually only used for reactions. Right. Here, he was using them constantly as establishing shots yeah. to bring a character or a concept or a plot point into the scene. The other movie that is famous for doing a lot of close-ups is Silence of the Lambs. Where it's like it's so intense because the conversation between them is just straight on close up shots of their face, like Interesting. all like bringing you in. Now he has the power. Now she has the power. Now like like and there's all uh, to angles the how you know it's all calculated. I think a lot of that has to do with the notion that in both films, in both this trilogy and in Silence of the Lambs, the dialogue is sparse. It's right. Everything has weight. Yes. So 
it's not like just extraneous conversation. Yeah. We have the time to really zero in on these faces as the dialogue is hitting us. Yeah. The power of each and every word, this conflict. And we get to see like the gravity of the situation yes. on their face, basically. That's, that's the yeah. right word, gravity. Yeah. Good, good, good. Also, I wanted to mention that in y- later years, Leone and Eastwood fell out. But I, I found a cool quote where he said that during this trilogy, he needed a mask. And Eastwood at that time was either two expressions, with a hat and without a hat. That is cool <laughs> to me. As a director myself, I hate to say it, but when you're trying to make a symbolic point and you don't want an actor's own <sighs> acting to get in the way of what you're trying to do from an expressive point of view, right? that's perfect. Yeah. And listen, I'm not saying that every director should do that, but in these kinds of films where you're defining a genre – and and so much of it is physical rather than dialogue. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. It makes perfect sense. I want you to talk to me a little bit about the music. Uh, yes, uh, Ennio Morricone, uh, who is the composer of all the music. Uh, you know, a really well-respected composer has done a bunch of stuff. Um, he later on, and a uh, notable thing I wanted to point out, uh, he later on in life worked with Clint Eastwood again. Yes, he did, Scott. I have it here. Uh, in In the Line of Fire. Great film. Frank, don't fucking lie to me. I have a rendezvous with death. Oh, and so does the president. And so do you, Frank, if you get too close to me. You have a rendezvous with my ass, motherfucker. Quentin Tarantino had been using some of his music for years, mm-hmm. like little snippets of it here and there, uh, and like Kill Bill, Volumes 1 and 2, sure. and other ones. Um, but then he actually did the soundtrack for uh, The Hateful Eight, Quentin right. Tarantino's last movie. But I, I found a uh, quote in an interview uh, that apparently he's not such a big fan of Tarantino. Really? Uh, he said that uh, Tarantino is a cretin uh, <laughs> whose movies are trash. Well, he's an old man. He's like he's 95 or something at this point, right? Yeah. Very yeah. old. What is but he? I think it's also part of the, you know, you're, he, he said he was like recycling stuff from old movies. And, well. and you know, he is, but it, it works. But it's its own great thing. Yeah. Now I really see how he's influenced by this trilogy. This is the yeah. first of many ways this trilogy influences him. So in yeah. seeing it, as soon as I heard this music, I was like, wow. It's used in the same way that Quentin uses his music. It's a character to punctuate scenes. Sound is like so important in these movies. And um, so it's, uh, that's the first of the, the Tarantino influences I hear. But this guy's doing films right up through the 80s and 90s. He's doing The Thing. He's doing Untouchables. Yeah. Untouchables, he's got a great soundtrack. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Um, and what, what's he most famous for in this trilogy? Well, of course, what you just heard, ladies and gentlemen, we came in. The famous Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Right. You don't, everybody just heard it. So I know, but it's been in my head all week. Okay, me too. Um, so there's that. And then, of course, um, The Ecstasy of Gold, that famous piece of music we're probably going to end this trilogy with. Yeah. Which you hear on commercials. What is it, a beer commercial it's on all the time now? And... It's been I used know. in the when I heard it, I had never I had no idea it was in these films. And I was like, what? Yeah. And it's an, an awesome part in the third film, and the music kicks in, you're like, oh baby, find yeah. the gold. Yeah. Gold. Gold. Where's the gold? So yeah, he is gigantic in the making of these films. All right. You have Sergio Leone, you have Ineo Morcone. And finally you have the man himself, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. All right, so Clint Eastwood. Um, right off the bat, Clint created a lot of the Man With No Name style. He found the costume himself in Hollywood. You know, he wasn't a smoker, but he liked the idea of having the cigar smoke in his mouth to kind yeah. of 
make him feel gritty and down and dirty. Yeah. Okay. Um, He's spitting the whole time. Right. He was mostly famous for Rawhide at this point. He had a long-standing part in the Western Rawhide, and Westerns were very big in the 50s. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Keep them doggies rolling. Man, my ass is swollen. Rawhide. Get him up, pull them out, wake him up, get him dressed, get him paid from the hair, Rawhide. So there were these films. Then you're looking at Clint in the 70s, Scott. Oh, yeah. All right, and I think in the '70s you're thinking Clint, you're thinking Dirty Fucking Harry. Another iconic character. Another iconic character. Go ahead, make my day. Now here's where it gets weird. You know, my movie memory begins roughly in the '80s. I was born in 1976. Yeah. He did really nothing in the '80s. Really nothing in the '80s. Okay. Yeah. Fell off a little bit. Was again being the mayor for a while out in California. Yeah. Okay. But then makes a gigantic comeback in the 90s. Yeah. Scott, tell me what he made the comeback with. Go. Unforgiven. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got. And all he's ever gonna have. Bridges in Madison County he was also in. Brings us up to the 2000s. Yes. All right. Is that with Meryl Streep? Yes, it is, Scott. Doing yeah. yet another accent where she's saying something with an accent. Yes. That's acting. Sometimes. <laughs> the Mystic River. and You're looking at Mystic River, an Academy Award nominee. You're looking at Million Dollar Baby, Baby, an Academy Award winner. Both pretty good. Grant Torino. Get off my lawn. He really was kind of politically okay in my mind till he lost his mind at that convention and started talking to an empty chair. Yeah. And people were like, oh shit, he's, yeah. he's off his rocker, right wing I'd rocker. Like to say a few things to Obama. What do you want me to tell Romney? I can't tell him to do that. that. Can't do that to himself. Are you ready to rock on to um, our... Absolutely. Are you ready to do this? Let's do it. A fistful of dollars is the first motion picture of its kind. It won't be the last. Fistful of dollars. Scott, we're in a crazy role where every trilogy we've done, the last three or four, have awesome credit sequences. Yeah. Where you're like, right? This is awesome. Yeah. In Beginning the... and closing credit sequences yeah. for all of these movies. Great. I, I, that's a total trend that I'm going to put down in our trilogy list that for some reason, trilogies really poured on with the credits, whether it be extra clips at the end or yeah. cool sequences or animation. They're always very cool. Yeah. But these films are so... I couldn't believe it. I wasn't prepared for how stylized these films are. They're like yeah. little plays. Um, and I thought at first, I was like, will this dubbing bother me? I wasn't sure whether it would... But I forgot about it pretty pretty immediately. It's a little weird. You can tell that it's not well, quite lining up. The Americans' dubbing is straight on. Yeah. You can, that's their real dialogue. You can tell. Right. Whereas <laughs> the European actors that aren't native speakers, whether they be Spanish or Italian or yeah. even German, you can see how yeah. it doesn't quite match sometimes. Yeah. But the dubbing has that over-enunciated way that you also hear in like Japanese dubbing, too. It's like, welcome to my town. I'm yeah. so glad you've yeah. come to help us here. You owe me $100. Like, <laughs> just exactly. like, that's, it's that kind of right. line. What does he pay you for murdering me? $500. Maybe my favorite line in all three movies is the first, is the first lines he says in this movie. It's these here. Get three coffins ready. My mistake, four coffins. The one thing I noticed in all these films, I was going to break in on your plots and say this, but I saved it till now. All of these, these bad families that he's playing against and using and 
getting the upper hand on. They all yeah. trust him way too easily. They're all very prepared oh, to give him money right immediately. Away. They're like, all right, you're in. Oh, you're going to help us? Here's a bag of gold. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess like there's always the scene of like, well, I think I need more evidence. And then he shoots something and they go, hey, good shooting. You're in. Like, you know how to fire a gun? That's Holmes all we're really are looking completely for. completely unguarded. Once he's taken in by the Baxters briefly, they completely forgot that he's gunned down four of their men immediately in yeah. the beginning of the movie. They're like, oh, come on in. Yeah. And let us tell you the story of the fucking Rojos. Yeah. Okay. They were being dicks. You were right to kill them. <laughs> no one, Scott, no one questions him after the fact about that ridiculous graveyard ruse that he tries to perpetrate. Oh, I'm yeah. Gonna take two dead bodies and assume that no one can notice from one fucking foot away that these are two dead men. Yeah. There's a gunfight happening and neither of them are moving. They're probably dead. <laughs> They're not great. reacting or like... It's so silly, but it's great. I just want to say, the little kid, when he comes out right at the beginning of the movie and he's running, the little kid who keeps calling for his mom yeah, who's been right. taken. That's weird. I, every time I see him, all I think is tattoo from Fantasy Island. <laughs> like, Come on, Mommy, the plane. Like, it is like that I want to Because he looks like he's mom. wearing a little white tuxedo. Like... I wrote, little kid sounds like he's been dubbed by an adult doing yeah. a kid's voice. <laughs> you probably. I wrote yes, that immediately. Probably. It's what it sounds like. The plane. The plane. <laughs> this is one random part where the guy, uh, I don't even, one of the townspeople, I think it's like the the morgue guy. Yeah. He just like goes past, he's like, keep this up and you'll only succeed in being killed. <laughs> like... <laughs> the fuck's your problem like you, like why is everyone like a loony bin here like <laughs> leave the town why is anyone even That's here the thing. Like, you can't leave the town they're stuck between these two warring families and they can't leave that wasn't very nice now he's gotta leave i'll tell you when the fuck we leave all right now you just can't leave the shooting at the end the rojo massacre of every fucking person every baxter at once yeah looks ridiculous to say nothing of the gatling gun yeah which obviously no one is getting hit with anything. There's no blood packs going off. There's no. <laughs> they didn't have that thing. It's just well, guys running and they get hit by one bullet in the spine. They go right down. And they ah, and they fall down. You're like, but he would have been riddled with bullets <laughs> through the whole. If they hit him, it wouldn't have been like one stray bullet hits him in the back of the spine. <laughs> right. Like through the whole Gatling gun scene, it seems as if the the gunner only keeps just noticing someone as they run away. Yeah. And then he fires at them. Huh? It's an like, open fire at them. God, yeah. have mercy on them. Yeah. <laughs> Stop firing. You could probably at their... just capture them now. Firing at their backs as they run away. <laughs> you're tor you're tormenting these people. Yeah. Horrible. I'd like to say that I was reminded of another trilogy, Taken, which may have borrowed from the scene. When he frees the girl, how he busts in on a bunch of people at a table, chilling out and hanging out, and just guns them all down immediately. Yeah. That is exactly what Liam Neeson does. In Eastern yeah. Europe, those guys are just chilling out watching the soccer game in multiple movies. And he's like, pow, 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 pow. Yeah. Dead. Get in. Strike hard. <laughs> get like, out. It really, like, seriously, it's one action trilogy borrowing from another action trilogy. Yeah. Good stuff. Ah, and of course, the the end of this movie. Ugh. The trilogy referencing, not to jump to the end. I have other notes. No, but, that's fine. I'm willing but, to. But uh, to mention another trilogy referencing another trilogy, Back to the Future He's watching the end of this movie. Biff is watching the end of this movie when he and he he sees the That's the metal right. plate idea, and he does it in the third movie. Scott, and he tells his character name. He tells him his name is Clint Eastwood in the third movie. He bitch. tells that's the name he goes by. What's your name, dude? Uh, Martin Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of stupid name is that? 
ladies and gentlemen, do you see now how these trilogies borrow from each other? You see? Yes. Why is Silvanito so loyal to Clint Eastwood? Yeah. Time after time, Clint Eastwood Immediately, is... though. That first scene, I'm like, Are, have you guys been friends for a while? Yeah, like... why is, here's a bag of money. Yeah. Then later, Clint's like... And then like, get the hell out of here. Yeah. Later, <laughs> like... Clint's like, I'm just going to fucking fuck with these people. And he's like, how dare you do this? I want no part of it. Yeah. But then he's been <laughs> he's, tor- he's tortured for Clint Eastwood, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. What are you looking for? Food, something to drink. Uh, eating and drinking, killing, that's all you can do, just like the rest of your kind. Were dollars that big in the Old West? Like, every time you see them <laughs> handling money, it's enormous. <laughs> it's like funny money. Like, it, like... Very wise. Yeah. Why are these? And I'm pretty sure they're so... like Confederate bills too in every movie. What? But they're enormous. <laughs> Why are these bills so wise? <laughs> yeah, we're like nobody ever stops because because they're real? not like, like American dollars. It's like these are like script, like military script like dollars. Like a receipt. Like <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's like a Dwayne Reed receipt. <laughs> Here you go. One of those like over eight times. Pre-folded napkins, you know, like <laughs> a trifold napkin being handed to me. Like oh the other thing I wrote too was on um, the giant dollars. A fistful of them wouldn't be all that much. No, but just because sometimes. they're enormous. <laughs> A fistful of dollars. It's three. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't even get the one in there. It's, <laughs> it's such a, a fistful a of dollars. How much do you have? I have three dollars. Well, <laughs> yeah. That's not very impressive. Yeah, you're doing all this for that? Like My fist is very small. The dollars are very big. What do you want from me? <laughs> I want my two dollars! For a few dollars more. It was a few dollars more. How could you even fit those big dollars into your hand? They probably fell I, right I, out. Yeah. You remember him, don't you? He's Clint Eastwood. In a fast-moving film crowded with action. For a few dollars more. I noticed another thing by Tarantino, and I checked it afterwards, and I was right. The guy that does a lot of the uh, English translation, or is the editor for English translation, his name is Mickey Knox. And I was like, son of a bitch, that is the name of the protagonist from Natural Born Killers, written initially oh. by Quentin Tarantino. And I looked it up, and he did name, name that after character. Him? Wow. When them people come here and they ask you who done this, you tell Mickey Mallory Knox did it, all right? Say it! Mickey Mallory Knox did it. So much yeah. of Tarantino as you watch this trilogy is... Well, that's the interesting thing. Um, I mean, especially doing... This is like the oldest trilogy we've done. It's been out right. for 50 years yep. and then some. Um, so, of course, we're going to find... Uh, other movies that have been inspired by these movies. Even uh, another example, I'll just throw it out right here, is uh, he spins the gun yeah. in the second movie, puts it in holster. Right. That's kind of a big part of RoboCop. That's the scene in RoboCop yep. where they realize that he's still got a little human left in him. Agreed. Because he remembers that and does the Scott, is that a tear coming out of your eyes? <laughs> you said he's got a little human left in him. I know that's the emotional center of that. I film. got a little human in me. <laughs> what? Thank you for your cooperation. There's a naked gun moment where the antagonist, Indio, is laughing with his mouth open in a <laughs> wide way. And a second after that, it becomes the wanted poster in yeah. that same laughing, over-exaggerated yeah, and, and laughing And the laughing way. still echoing and yeah, going. It's yeah. so, again, naked I was gun. fucking dying laughing. Yeah. It's hilarious. And the other, like, Who took that photo? The other funny part is, it's like a photorealistic picture right. of him, but exactly. the wanted poster earlier was like a fucking child drew that. Of like, exactly. He's a man with a mustache. Like, <laughs> like, no wonder that guy didn't find that flattering. Exactly but. right. Ha 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 
So we're introduced to a partner of Clint in this one, Lee Van Cleef. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, he's awesome yeah. in this film. He's a badass. He's really got a cool way of talking. It almost sounds like a public service announcer from like the 60s. Like, or don't get into a car with strangers. Anything could happen. Why should a man walk around with a pistol and then let himself be insulted? It's mighty strange. It's cool because it's like you get you get, you're basically getting two men with no names in this movie yeah. where you're like they're they both have their quippy dialogue they've got their different set of morals mm-hmm. and such but yeah it's it, the their relationship their partnership is very interesting but again overly trusting criminals later on he's like I can open the safe for you they're like go ahead all right great no problem yeah here's and here's a big fistful of money for it yeah what. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it wasn't hard to make money in the old west if you just were willing to just bullshit people. Yeah, I'm a I'm great at stuff. Let me do it yeah. for you. Here's some well, money. Well, that's like a, most criminals are dumb. This mm-hmm. one's about a guy in Portland, Oregon, who accidentally called 911 in the middle of a meth deal. When Von Cleef meets the bad gang, and he has the face off with um, Klaus Kinski. You notice this is two trilogies in a row that we had a Quasimodo. Well, yes. Then Scott, two don't hunchbacks. make the same mistake that Hotel Transylvania made by saying Quasimodo was a fucking a hunchback, not a monster. He is. He's not a monster. He's a man. All right. So you're oh, right. That's a great animal. point. We say to ourselves, how many films contain someone with a hunchback? Yes. Well, give it a think. I like the inclusion of the sound that keeps happening throughout the movie, like that kind of twang noise that gets used in like the score like but again like more you know more sound more stuff like you know punctuating things <laughs> just, it just always makes me laugh because it's like kind of a <laughs> the one guy looks like paulie which, which guy the last one that betrays see i wrote down at I, the end i What's think his name boogie he's kind of sleepy like, what's it's a funny name foggy or something like that groggy groggy foggy I think it's groggy. No, he it's... looks like Paulie Shore. He does kind of look like Paulie Shore. <laughs> I also think he looks sort of like James Caan in a slight weird way. Um, Paulie Shore and James Caan. Come and together. now that I think about it, it, kind of looks like Stephen Miller too in a strange, weird way. The Trump, uh, you know, that that weirdo. Yeah, creep. everybody looks like a Trump fucking guy to you. You thought that what's his name looked like Mueller. He did. Who who did you say looked like Mueller? was the sun and Smokey and the Bandit. That's right. And I looked at those two pictures, Scott, because I was going to put it on Instagram, and they don't look anything like each other, Oh, man. I think he looks They're a little fucking, bit like him. I laughed at you at the time and agreed. Then I went back and looked at him. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck Scott's looking at. These are just two guys. Looks more like him than Robert De Niro does. <laughs> That's true. De Niro making an ass of himself on <laughs> SNL again, unable to fucking say a line hey. without stumbling and mumbling. Memorize it, idiot! Don't you know by now that you can't read a prompter and that you're a great actor? Yeah. Memorize the six fucking lines. You're not doing a movie. Memorize the lines. You're making a fool of yourself on TV every time. Sorry. Damn you. Damn you. <laughs> There's the scene where uh, he rides ahead before they rob the bank, and he he tells the guy, the uh, telegram guy, the telegraph guy. Yeah. And he was like, send the the message. And they right, like, the whole bluff. oh, okay. Yeah. And like, as he's sending the message, all I kept thinking is like, there's a man behind me. He has a gun <laughs> to my head. Like, what what would have stopped him from sending Clint that Clint obviously speaks fucking <laughs> a Morris code. I understand it fluently. No. Like, like, did you just say? <laughs> send help. Stop. 
And we have in this film the three-way standoff, right? Yeah. It's our first three-way standoff. Is that what they call the Mexican standoff? When uh, three? I no, I think the Mexican standoff is more everything uh, stops and just freezes. It's like a, a stalemate. Like, stalemate. Yeah. Everyone's and that's what Tarantino borrowed so much from. Right. And this is going to be There's even the scene in uh Inglorious Bastards where he explains the Mexican standoff right. too. Yeah. You got guns on us. You decide to shoot, we're dead. Up top, they got grenades. They drop them down here, you're dead. That's a Mexican standoff, and that was not the deal. The only other thing I was going to say, uh, well, about almost all of these movies, or all the movies, is there's no credits at the end. There was, I think Good and Bad and the Ugly had some small amount of credits. I think that's just a movie trend in general that's changed this time is going on, no? Yeah, I guess so. It's just, it's like, you know, from all the other ones, like any of the other trilogies we watch, I can guarantee that it's going to be at least 10 minutes shorter didn't than I think. Didn't you tell me there was some Batman or some shit that didn't have a front credit to it? Wasn't there one? Of the, there was a the trilogy dark, we watched. The, tri- the Dark Knight trilogy didn't have Does credits. Front, no, credits no, no pre-credits, yeah. See, now that... It just begins. It gives you the bat of, symbol and then the story That's a piece of superhero begins. information that is a great connection to this. I like that idea. Yeah. You know, because the more grandiose the movie is, the more important the movie is, the more they can fuck with that. You know, something that's so accepted in Hollywood. I like that. It makes sense to me. Yeah. All right. You want to go on to the next? Uh, yeah, I'm ready. The good. The bad. The civil war. Scott, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <clears throat> oh. That was ugly. That was a little ugly for you. There is so much to this movie as compared to the other two. Its plot is longer, deeper. There are more movements to it and more characters involved. Yeah, This one feels a little more uh, disconnected scenes almost. We should just mention right now so that there's people know what we're talking about with this movie. Van Cleef comes back. Yes. He plays the bad character. Yeah. And then Eli Wallach plays the ugly, a Mexican named Tuco. Tuco, yeah. I wonder. Also, you know, go ahead. I wonder Are you say the same thing? If, if fucking Breaking Bad was, was yes was influenced uh, with the their character too. He seems to be kind of crazy, like or, same kind or, of. Or are you and I such gringos that we've only heard the name Tuco mentioned in these two contexts? And so well, naturally, I mean, it's, it's, they, they must be related. I mean, Vince Gilligan's pretty white, you know. So <laughs> I can imagine him being like, oh, "I love that movie, and I'm going to use that." Like Vin did the research later and found there's 57 movies with a character named Tuco that they just didn't see. <laughs> But maybe, you know, I could see how Breaking Bad could be slightly influenced by these movies as well. Sure, you know? sure. You see, you're going to see this, these movies influence forget a about generation the of Forget movies. about the theme and the plot. Breaking Bad takes place where these movies took place. Right. Oh, tight, 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 yeah! Boy, Eli Wallach is quite an interesting character. He's classically trained. He's a Jewish New Yorker. Yeah. And he plays Don Altobello, um, Godfather Part 3. So he's been That's in right. multiple trilogies. Yeah. All right. Actually, Van Cleef as well. Van Cleef had a cameo in one of the Cannonball Run movies. So uh, he's, in a much more minor way, a trilogy superstar. Yeah. But Eli Wallach can you know, make a claim as being a legit hardcore actor. Um, and he's very much the emotional center of this film. It's interesting because, like I was saying earlier, I feel like there's a lot of side characters that do a lot of the talking in the movie. Mm. And in this one, they sort of made him a main character. Yep. Hey, the old father tells me you'll be up and around in a few days. You're very lucky to have me so close when it happened. Think if you've been on your own. Uh, Eli is cool when he gets the gang, when he gets his guns, all the little movements where he's getting his shit together. It's slick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I like, he's got my favorite quote uh, in this movie. It's uh, when he's in the bathtub and that bounty hunter comes in. Yeah. And he, he's just talking like, I got you right where I want you. And yep. they, he shoots him from the bath. And he's like, when you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. He is so obviously a New York City Jew. Yeah. Through this whole movie. Yeah. Slipping into a Mexican accent from time to time. Yeah. But I wrote down, Scott, I wrote down, potty, water, matter. Talk, yeah. river. <laughs> yeah. These are all him talking in his real vernacular. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then from time to time, it's almost like, oh shit, I'm a Mexican guy. Let me throw in a little. Like Mexican. he heard himself and was like, oh, that's a little. Ooh. I mean, but I, much as that might bother a purist in yeah. the world, it as you know, I think it just it's funny. It fits with the whole color of the film. He's he's ugly. Yeah. All around, how he talks, the, how these, he acts, these what movies he looks take, like. They take place in the Old West, but it's also in like a world that doesn't really exist. Good point. MGM presents Westworld. <laughs> the scene where uh, the bad, uh, Lee Van Cleef, is sitting there eating stew with that guy at the yeah. beginning. Like, I was like, that's the most, like, you're eating stew and somehow it's still sinister. The yeah. way you're like staring across the table like. He just tiny little pieces of vegetable that he picked out of the stew, like eating those and looking just frightening. Um, what else is good? You know, there's one great sequence after another um, leading up to the stagecoach, but I feel like the movie starts to get a little long in this area where we're torturing Clint in the desert. Yeah. We're leading up to the stagecoach revelation. It goes on, on for a while. On. Yeah. Um, there's a lack of urgency. In there the certainly is. And again, you can see that Leone is having his fun with his visual images. It looks cool, but you're like, yes. okay, let's. Yeah. You're waiting for something to happen because you know when something happens, it's going to be badass. So you're like, yeah. let's get there. Okay, I get what you're trying to capture visually and with the music. I get it. Ultimately, this movie is an awesome two hour movie hidden in a three hour movie. Yes. Because there are needless scenes in it. Yes. I like the conversation with the brother where we get the moral story where he's like, you know, you took that, made that decision. I made this decision. I'm a bandit. You don't know how my life has been hard. It's cool. It takes this buffoonish character and gives him a dramatic center. Okay. But it's still a long movement. It's a long movement. And just conveniently, the fucking guy's brother's a priest. It's a little too convenient. Yeah. 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 So that's a long movement in there. Yeah. You know, there are sections of these movies that I'm like, you could have just taken that out and it wouldn't have affected anything. Um, I love how when they come across the Confederate soldiers, he's gesturing to them. Yeah. And the smoke blows away, and he sees that the uniforms are actually the color of the yeah. Confederacy. The fucking soundtrack laughs at him. <laughs> and that's fucking yeah. the movie laughing at Eli Wallach. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the like great. like it's like the soundtrack is watching the movie with yeah. us. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's a character. Yeah, it's the narrator. I always want in all these scenes of like shooting hats. They're shooting so many hats off a lot of people's of hat heads. Uh, I I just want one time him to accidentally shoot someone in the head. Yeah, like ooh, sh- it'd be like like a, oh, oh shit, that. like I didn't mean to do that. Oh yeah, I saw. I got fuck, distracted for a I second. The brim was an inch higher. I didn't realize ooh, it was uh, actually like guarding. Part yeah, because some of these hats they're wearing, I'm like, you, that's not like a ten gallon hat you where there's really a lot of room. Fire at the. Sip yeah. of the top like, of the in hat, like an angle too. So I like to not... push my hat down a little bit, Scott. I don't know yeah. about you. Some of, the, I mean, especially Clint gets his hat shot off. I'm like, that's a hat that's like flat on your fucking head. Thank you. That's like, like that's not like a bandito hat. It's not like a cowboy hat. Yeah, it's a flat top hat. Yeah. So you know, they're like, there's no way anyone did that. Whoever has the most liquor to get the soldiers drunk and send them to be slaughtered, he's the winner. 
Speaking of that guy, I, I like how when they first get there, he's like, come on, prove you're cool. Have a drink. Like, I have a huge problem. Like I'm glad, peer pressure. I'm glad we're at the scene. This is my example of a scene that should be completely eliminated from this film. Yeah, it's long. It is needless. Walking across the entire fucking... Where he, the drunken guy walks them through the entire battlefield, babbling about nothing. Yeah. Later, facing no resistance from anyone and in front of everyone, they blow up the bridge. Yeah. For what? It's for nothing. Yeah. If they had eliminated that scene and maybe the scene where Clint is recovering in the mission, you've got the perfect film here. Yeah. Okay, so there's the part where, like... Eli Wallach is running away and Clint starts follow- firing that cannon at him. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I know he's a good shot, but it's a fucking cannon. How do like, you know where those cannonballs right, are going to That land. it's going to be just next to him without killing him. Like, how good are you really? Like, if you're willing to kill this guy. just fucking with him. Obviously, the cemetery is within their view because once he's shot him twice with the cannon, he's blown into the cemetery. Right. So yeah. Clint is just fucking with him. He's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I obviously gave you the wrong information. Go run around like an idiot. Right. Yeah. And he. What's funny is he does. He never re-aims that cannon. He just, You're right. Like, like does a very little in this movie. Honestly, he doesn't do very much at all. Yeah. And then of course the the famous piece of music, the ecstasy of gold, comes on. We're gonna yes. end the podcast with that piece of music. Yeah. So there's no need to play it now. Yeah. And I had no idea that this piece of music was, had anything to do with this movie. I thought it was just it was in commercials. I didn't know what. And so when I heard it, I was like, no fucking way. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds great. You get that camera effect where it's spinning around as Tuco, in a panic, is looking for the yeah. right grave. Great moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know, like, in that final shot, they keep cutting to their guns on their hips. Yeah, that's the famous. But, like, there, there's, like, at least, I mean, all of them are pretty close. But there's, like, three shots in a row where it's just a shot of crotch, crotch, crotch. Where it's, like... <laughs> I know you're showing us the guns, but you're just kind of like crotch, crotch. Yeah, and he's like, crotch. He's a dick that looks a bigger there. Like, I keep uh, that shot in. There's something about the man with a gun and the get penis. Okay, okay. Move the camera to the left so we see more of <laughs> the, the, the penis. Hey, yes, I want to see the outline of the penis. I need to smile, Mr. Easterwood. Can you get a little harder for the shot? <laughs> Yeah, and meanwhile, Eli walks like, I can get hotter. I can get hotter. <laughs> you wouldn't hotter. believe how hot I could get. He sounds like Tony Curtis. That's totally how Eli Wallach talks in the Yeah, movie. like totally out of place. Yeah. Like, what are you doing I, here? I don't give a shit. I still like him. Danger fits him like a tight black glove. He is perhaps the most dangerous man who ever lived. I am so excited that Phil is back in town. So in honor of the fact that he's back in New York City, we found out that the rodeo is coming to Madison Square Garden, so I thought that this corresponded really well with this trilogy. Yeah. So we sent Perfect. Phil to the rodeo, but ahead of time, I, I spoke to some of the people that are running the rodeo, so they would be ready for him. Yeah. And this is what happened. All right. Hey, gang, this is Phil, your man on the street for the trilogy podcast. And uh, <laughs> this just in, I'm at my first rodeo. I want to thank Scott and Vin for tickets to this really exciting thing. I've never been, so this is really cool. And You're up um, next. I'm sorry? You ready to ride? What? You're on the list. You're up no, no, next. No, 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 no. I'm just here. I'm just here to cover it. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm a journalist. Sir, You're sir. You're on the list. Touch- Get on the sir, damn Sir, I, I, I've, I've, I've never ridden a bull before. Well, first time for everything. Okay, well, apparently I'm going to be riding a bull. Uh, this is not only my first rodeo, this is my first... Well, this is my first rodeo. Yes, yes. Uh, full stop. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah! Whoa! Whoa. Hey! Ah. Ah. 
doing okay. <laughs> doing good here. If only I could use both hands because I'm holding my foot. Oh, ah! Ow! <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God! Not an easy listen. But we should probably move on. Scott, I loved this trilogy. Okay? It's rare yeah. that you hear those words come out of my mouth. I'm usually predisposed to disliking films, really being a miserable, cranky bastard, and being overly critical of these movies. You've liked many more trilogies and said that they were a success than I have. Yes. But I got to tell you, this m- trilogy, without question, is a success. Ultimately, I went with one... Three, two, because I felt mm. like three went on very long despite its epic status. And had it eliminated a couple of needless scenes, it, you know, it would have been number one. But I just love the introduction of the Clint character, the directness of the plot, mm. and I just thought it was a fantastic film. So I'm going a successful trilogy, Scott. One, three, two. See, I think be, mine's going to be a little bit different. But again, all the movies are good. I liked all of them. Yeah. I enjoyed watching all of them, even though the third one was a little bit long. Mm. Uh, even though, in my mind, the first one was a little simplistic compared to the other ones. No once question. you watched all of them, no question. Um, I actually two is my favorite. What are you saying? Yeah, I really like. Have two you lost because your mind? you get you get all my favorite. I like Indio. I think that character is stronger than Ramon in the first one. I think he's it's a much more fun character. There's a lot more background to it. So I think my order is. I think it's going to be 231. 231. Okay. Because, again, and I like all of them. I like the first one, but again, the third one, you've got Eli Wallach. You got, like, I'm a. I think I tend to lean more towards, like, affection for characters. It's funny you know that what I mean? you and I have an opposite order for this one. Okay. Yeah. But there's really no argument because we both appreciate that these are awesome movies. Yeah. And it's the most minor of things that separate them. Yeah. I don't think anyone would have expected you would say number two based upon what you said during this podcast, but that's only because they're all so good and we right. just like them all so much. And that's so me much. taking, like, you know, I, I like to think that, you know, the notes while I'm watching the movie are just off the cuff, but when you're looking at it as a whole. Sure. Guys, thanks so much for listening to us. And I want to point out our what? next trilogy will be our 20th. Folks, keep an eye on the Instagram account, Trilogy Podcast. It's a great compliment to the podcast. And keep an eye on our Twitter feed. We're going to change it up now where we're going to get feedback from you. We want to hear your opinions on what your order is. We want to know if you think it's a successful trilogy. Until then, adios, amigos. <laughs> right. Partner. We need to stop it.